0: pop culture affidavit episode 63 truth be told Hello and welcome to episode 63 of Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I'm turning my attention to a genre of film that I'm quite fond of and I've had really uh, gotten into during the last, I'd say, 10 years or so, for reasons I will get into later. Uh, that is documentaries. I'm going to be talking about uh, what documentaries are, what makes a good documentary, documentaries that are worth watching. Uh, but I'm not alone in this. I have with me someone who has been on the show before. In fact, he was part of last episode and who is really one of the best people to have such an, wait for it, academic discussion with. Please welcome back to the show, Professor Allen. Alan. How are
1: uh, you? Thank you, Tom. <laughs> glad, glad to be on for another huge, impossible topic. And the last time I was on for a full show, we talked about every movie that's ever been based on a book. I know. Now we have every documentary that's ever been made. (laughs) I mean, look, Stella comes on and you talk about one Dale Evans comic. (laughs) Andrew Leyland, he talks about a four-issue miniseries. So I guess that's a compliment, right? Yes.
0: I mean, (laughs) I could have you on to talk about an issue of Girls Love or – (laughs) <laughs> or V the, the comic book or something if you want, but
1: no, no, I think I'd rather talk about every documentary ever made. <laughs> no, I just, I was, um, it's, uh, full disclosure, uh,
0: Thomas DJ and, um, oh, Derek. Ferguson, Ferguson. Okay. Have a, po- have a podcast called better in the dark. Um, I don't know if it's, I think it's pod faded. Um, cause I haven't, Honestly, I haven't listened to it in years, and I don't think they've done an episode in a very long time, um, for reasons that are beyond the show. My comments here, but years ago they did an episode about documentaries. Um, we're talking like three or four years ago, and that was kind of the inspiration behind it. Uh, but also the uh, the other inspiration behind the episode was that I have, and I, I I don't want to assume, but I would say that you have, or at least you're familiar with uh, subscriptions to streaming services such as Netflix, mm-hmm. Hulu. Um, Amazon. My wife has an Amazon Prime account that we use. We, I, we have an HBO. I think we have an HBO Go account because of the cable package we have comes with HBO. But uh, between Amazon, Hulu, and Netflix, you have access to a ton of different movies. And not only that, there are a lot of documentaries that are really easy to access in a way that when um, I was much younger, you know, like 20 years ago, Didn't even have access to like through the video store. They probably had some of the bigger name ones in their small documentary shelf because I had a really good video store. But unless I wanted to watch a few music documentaries that were basically glorified public relations films, some sports documentaries, which were always fun, good to watch, or like the huge video cassette set of Ken Burns' Civil War. Things like that. Unless I wanted to watch things like that, there really wasn't much that I could watch as far as documentaries go. And then you have the DVD explosion, and then you have the streaming explosion, and um, and there's been a real... And I think maybe coupled with the rise of better quality personal video equipment and video edit, like, movie making on this level has become a lot cheaper than it was. Even... A decade ago like a decade and a half ago so um so the rise of that as well has led i to
1: think this, yeah this. I, I also think the number of potential outlets for viewing you mentioned that a little bit with mm-hmm. your hulu's and your netflix but also youtube and, and and other things have become places for you know either short form documentaries or longer forms that it that you don't have to Expect the documentary to make its money back in the theater, yeah. Which is, which is impossible, yeah. Or you know... for the most part that that yeah. severely limits the 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 funding that a, that a doc can get. But between the equipment, mm-hmm. which has become cheaper as well as uh, more available, and the various you know, uh, revenue streams mm-hmm. that any movie can have, I think it's simply become a little bit more of a closer to a break-even yeah. uh, proposition. I think a filmmaker can see, actually, that that this could happen, that, that you can even get some funding for it, even things like a Kickstarter, etc., in terms yeah. of ways of, of getting funding. So I think it's a little bit of everything that is making documentaries more available, more viewed, uh, and, and, and easier to make. Yeah, and uh, Kickstarter is a good example,
0: uh, and, and a lot of us who are comic book fans are familiar with it because of a film that came out uh, within the last year or so, The Death of Superman mm. Lives, What Happens, right. which I believe um, – not all of which. I think the the kind of back end or the very – like the last bit of funding that they needed, they did through Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know there was a Kickstarter campaign, um, and it was successful. Uh, successful in the area that a number of crowdfunding campaigns haven't been. But then again, there's an audience for a documentary like The Death of Superman Lives because, you know, there's a huge comic. In the same way that there was an audience for the Veronica Mars movie, which was
1: right. yeah. uh, one of the bigger Kickstarter success stories. I think um, I think also fundamentally the rise of, Cable TV outlets also is, is mm-hmm. one to not to not dismiss because they tend to deliver very specific you know, audiences. It's niche. Um, yeah. So the ESPN
2: documentaries,
1: mm-hmm. you know, there's a viable outlet for those. You know, you yeah. might not folks might not seek those out. Uh, you know, were they not on the main sports channel?
0: Yeah, you're no longer – if you're a documentarian, you're no longer waiting for, like, HBO to pick you up. Right. Or um, on the other end of things, a, a station that we all have, but I think a lot of people take for granted for PBS to pick you up. Mm-hmm. And but even that, then, PBS has specific yes. things it looks for.
1: Well, you've got history and you've got Discovery and you've got mm-hmm. Science Channel, whatever they are. And we mentioned ESPN and va- various other places mm-hmm. for your doc to potentially, potentially – Find an outlet. Yeah. Now, granted, like I said, you and
0: I have both been around longer than Netflix and Hulu, <laughs> um, and uh, both of us way longer. And I hate to use the origin story gimmick here, but I am curious as to like where does your interest in watching these types of films come from, or what's your experience like? Do you remember your earliest experience seeing films or shows or things that were of this nonfiction variety, as opposed to you know the fictional shows that we were all
2: you know, yeah i familiar. think i
1: think i can answer that in a couple ways first off just just like my reading i mean probably a quarter of the books i read are are non-fiction i like a good thriller and a good mystery and a good sci-fi or fantasy novel but between business books or historical books or ugh, the occasional self-help management book mm. um uh, for me, you know, theology and spiritual books. Mm-hmm. So probably you know, a quarter a third of what I read is nonfiction. it's probably a similar ratio. A quarter to a third of what I watch is somewhere would fall broadly in the in the nonfiction. I'm including some elements of reality TV or or documentary TV as animal you know animal planet and those sorts of you know some of those sorts of of shows as well. But probably in terms of documentaries, it may be. Mutual of Omaha Wild Kingdom, or hmm. something like that. You know, a a you know, the the nature documentaries.
0: Yeah, like National Geographic
1: specials. Exactly. You know that 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 sort of uh, programming when I was a kid.
0: So mine was uh, more along it was uh, along similar lines. I do remember. Uh, I do you remember a Wild Kingdom uh, National Geographic specials, especially? I remember ones about dinosaurs because I I, I think every. I'm going to say boy because I was a boy and I have a boy, but and I think girls go through the same phase, but it seems like every boy at some point in his life goes through a huge dinosaur thing. <laughs> yeah. And I remember two specials from back in the day. One was with Christopher Reeve. It was called Dinosaur, and he like hosted it. And the other one was it was a PBS one. It was called The Asteroid and the Dinosaur. And so that was like when I was at peak dinosaurs. But even before then, and I don't know if they're technically considered documentaries, but... Making of specials, the making of Star Wars, the making of of whatever movie. Uh, A lot of people from my generation will will smile and nod when I say the making of Thriller, because when Showtime, um, I remember it was on Showtime because this is the one time my parents had cable way back in the day before they got rid of it and then got it again years later. Uh, They had Showtime and Showtime would show Thriller, but they packaged it with the music mini movie. As well as the behind-the-scenes making of special, and you watched the whole thing, um, which was I think ran about a half an hour, forty-five minutes. It might have been a full hour, for what I remember. And the other thing I was saying, there was there was one specific documentary I remember very very early on. It was about the nineteen eighty four Olympics, and it was called Sixteen Days of Glory. Mm, right. Uh, I did a blog post about this years ago, and and I that was one that I remember my dad renting from the uh, video store and just watching that over and over. There was, there were the, the the team highlight videos for the year, that sort of stuff. I I still have the 1986 Mets one. It's called a year to remember. And then I think my earliest exposure to something akin to a documentary, even though it technically wasn't documentary were the segments on Mr. Rogers neighborhood, Ah, where he would go, he would go somewhere and it would just talk to, Uh, a real person yeah a real person (laughs) and and about their job or something and it would just be this whole thing of like you know it's for preschoolers and it's like I'm um, oh I don't know I'm a blacksmith this is how I do my job and I'm a mailman you know like or something and that, I th- it's pro- that was probably my first exposure to something that was close to a documentary because it was, it was not in the land of make-believe. It was not set right. up as a cartoon. It was him actually going out to a
1: business or a factory or somewhere. And, and so and
0: then from there.
1: Yeah. As, you're, as you're talking, remember a couple others from growing up, one in particular that my dad watched. must It was a series. It came out, I don't know if these were from the library, if they were on PBS or whatever, but it was The World at War, I believe it was called.
2: It was yes. a British
1: um, uh, uh, production company. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with, with footage from, from that uh, area, mm-hmm. World War II. But it was incredibly detailed. And again, my mind, it 10 parts or 15 parts or yeah. whatever it would have been. An extremely detailed historical uh, documentary. Mm-hmm. And I actually, remember that you're talking about, about your kids. Uh, for Emily, a lot of it was her phase was animals. Whether mm-hmm. it was the Kratt brothers on PBS, or Crocodile Hunter, or Meerkat Manor, or whatever it is on, on Animal Planet. planet. No, there was a, there was a, a run of a couple years where she was, uh, you know, Animal Planet 24/7 it seemed. like. <laughs>
0: My father-in-law watched a lot of that, and <laughs> Brett, Brett will sit and watch it with him. Although sometimes we have to be careful because it's like you know when he was younger there are some really cool shows about animals. And then there are the ones of like animals ripping each other <laughs> apart. And I, I realized it's reality and, you know, we don't shy away from um, him knowing where his food comes from, you know, like, you know what I mean? Right. Like that. But at the same time, I don't want to, you know, he's, he's eight now. He's going to be nine in a couple weeks. So he could probably watch a show where a lion is chasing a gazelle across the Serengeti and captures it. But, there are those shows when you're four and it's like, I don't know if he needs to see something this way. <laughs> no, my, mine was a lot of, there was a lot of sports documentaries. It was, it was a lot of that dinosaur stuff and, uh, and the make the making of, and that's why I get very, um, when I want to, I will sit down and geek out with featurettes on, Right. If I have the time, that's the thing about me and DVD <laughs> features and stuff, you know, do I have the time to sit down
1: and, and watch the, the 30 minute thing on, uh, right. On the, on a blu-ray or whatever. I, so. I can't remember the context who we were talking to. It's probably been recorded and, and is out somewhere, but <laughs> at, at one point uh, Emily and I were talking to somebody, and uh, she made the comment that the single DVD that she has probably watched the most in her life is the first disc of the special features of the two towers. Hmm. which she has probably said you know hundreds of times. you know she watched that nonstop the costuming and the uh, the sword making and all of that stuff um and that is i mean she sort of developed a, uh, a real keen interest
2: mm-hmm. in
1: in filmmaking from those dvds on the extended editions of the lord of the rings films that's cool
0: brett um every once in a while will want to sit down and watch the extra features on like one of his pixar movies which sometimes it's the shorts but sometimes right. it's the it's flat out. This is how we made part of Monsters Inc. And like showing how they put this together, this scene together, or whatever. Um, I found the star the Star Wars ones I find fascinating. And there's a there's one on I think it's Revenge of the Sith. And I think they do this for all the prequels. But in the Revenge of the Sith, there's one where they take you into what it takes to make one minute of the movie. And they go from, like, every department um, in Lucasfilm to show you the battle on, like, Mustafar, I think it is. And it's really cool just to see Mm -hmm. all the work that goes into this one scene and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's I've watched a lot of those when I get the chance. But to go on, and I think just to lay a little bit of groundwork, because we are going to get into specific movies that we both like. Um, Some that we have both seen because we peek behind the curtain. I proposed this to you a a few months ago, I think, and then we just put it off until when we were a time when we were both off.
1: And uh... to most people, that's summer. (laughs) That's that's what most people call that time.
0: (laughs) Yes, we we sat down um, and we used thanks thanks to the uh, the technology available through Google Docs, put a document together where we just listed and corroborated. Documentaries that we have seen, uh, so that we've been kind of yeah, and we've been updating it here and there, and and the and we had we do have a basic structure here. In the first, but and I wanted to kind of lay the groundwork and ask the question: What is a documentary like? You know, we know a documentary is essentially nonfiction, or or purports to show something nonfiction or real life or something that has actually happened in the real world, whether that is making a movie or uh, World War Two, uh, but. What separates, you know, there's, are, there's, what, what are the types of documentaries? What separates documentary from, say, reality television or a news magazine? And then uh, we'll get into whether or not it's art, whether or not this is journalism, is it propaganda? Is it all three? So, like, what to you is a documentary? What, what would, why, what would you, how would you consider something a documentary as opposed to say, uh, a reality show or a, or a, or a, a, a sixty minutes news magazine or something?
1: I think one is maybe the the scope. The uh, I'm trying to think. Not not the size of it, but something <laughs> about the time passing. Like maybe the, maybe uh, reflective. There's some reflection to the it. The breaths, maybe.
2: Yeah, yeah. I th- but I, th- uh. I
1: think maybe some distance. Some okay. distance uh, in terms of time, uh, as opposed so you know a, a documentary. Uh, You know, certainly might use TV news Mm -hmm. from the same era Mm -hmm. that was happening simultaneously. But they're two different things. Uh, Okay. Really, even in the same way that a a news magazine or a news, you know, even a, a weekly news magazine is different from a daily newspaper. Yeah. There's a little time, a little time at least to reflect. And I think that's part of it. Maybe seeing the bigger picture, um, as opposed to something I'm, I'm thinking spe- specifically about, about news or even a you know a feature that that might run on a, on a new uh, with the news show. There's mm-hmm. just a little more time, a little more context, perhaps. That's true. That's true. Yeah, there does seem to be there's a, there seems to be
0: more of a, a craft to it. Mm. Not that not that news magazine not the pieces on sixty minutes are crafted. Right. But yeah, there's more attention paid to that craft. Um and uh there are I mean there are different forms of them here. You have your short forms. We were talking about feature ads. There are TV specials that could definitely qualify as as documentaries. And these are the ones you're talking you're generally talking, or short films. You're generally talking what to like 30 minutes to an hour, roughly. Then you've got your feature length, which you're 90 minutes, two hours, maybe bordering on three, although there aren't that many three-hour documentaries out there that are meant to be done in one sitting. Um, And then you have your long form or mini-series. Hello, Ken Burns. Ken Burns, yeah. uh, Civil War, uh, baseball. (laughs) Um, Spike Lee did a... Is it six or eight hours? I can't remember how many parts are there. Mm -hmm. Uh, When the levees broke about Katrina of which I've watched the first two parts and is amazing I just have to get through the rest of them um, I may re-watch those uh, and then there's a very very well known inc- I think it's 10 hours long Holocaust documentary called Shoah that um, I have never seen myself but but it is held up as one of those sort of incredibly ambitious documentary projects uh, of a topic that I've studied quite a bit because of teaching the, um, unfortunately recently passed Elie Wiesel's Mm -hmm. night, but I don't, I, I I tell the kids every every time we we read it, the night's only about 115 pages. And I say, I don't think I could handle anything that was longer, you know, and, and Schindler's list is about three hours long and that's about my max on that topic. But yeah, there, there's that, but, but yeah, I think you're right. I, I, because I, I think you have to narrow down that you have to narrow the definition a little bit more when you're when you're trying to separate yourself from just general nonfiction. Because there's plenty right. of stuff on TV that purports to be nonfiction, and falls under that realm of reality television. Yes. I would not consider Keeping Up with the Kardashians to be a documentary. Although reality television in its early years, yes, has come as close to documentary as the genre ever got. I would contest, and maybe this is because the later seasons of this show are just so bad, and now the first few seasons of this show are almost like a time capsule of the early 90s, but I will contest that the first maybe three to four seasons of The Real World are as close to a documentary as that show ever got.
1: I found the show after the hype of the first season and watched the second one you know, week mm-hmm. to week as it came out and it was terrific yeah. and you get the sense that it was not set up like so many of those types of shows are it, yeah. and, and there, there seemed to be very little going on be, besides documenting this situation there seem to be, you know, and in, in a lot of well, a lot of other shows very specifically have, you know, a competition aspect to it. Mm-hmm. Those, to me, get totally thrown out of this category because that's a game show. That's a different type of show. Oh yeah, I, I would never call Top Chef a documentary. Right. Or, or Project Runway. Yeah. Or 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 even the Kardashians. You know, you you mm-hmm. sense in those there are. You no, know, the executive producers are setting up the things that it, that that are going to happen on that show,
0: and it, they are such their own brand. Yes, that sure. yeah. That the reality of that is like when you control the reality, it's not
1: reality. And I and um, I and I think even by the time you got probably to the fourth or fifth season of the Real World, it was becoming iterative in the sense that the people who were on the show had were fans of the show knew the, what to expect from the show knew yeah. the roles that were demanded of cast on the show yeah. and started to live into that and so you you lost some of what whatever natural elements mm-hmm. there had been in those first few seasons when it really was something fresh
0: yeah and i think it was season 5 or so Uh, which was either Miami or Boston, and I can't remember which one came first, where the producers actually tweaked the format where instead of just, we're going to cast seven people. And granted, they cast those people on purpose. They always cast those people on purpose. But we're going to cast seven people into this house and we're just going to follow them into, they had the group have a specific job to do. Right, tasks, right. Because... um, a couple of years ago, I rewatched San Francisco, which is, I think, from the early 90s, aside from the first season, that's the season everybody remembers the sure. most because of uh, Pablo, Pedro, 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 yeah. Pedro Zamora and, and Puck right. and, secondarily, Judd Winnick. Right.
2: Um,
0: and But one of the things that, that... There's a couple of things that I noticed as I was watching that show and that Judd's wife, Pam, who, um, who he started dating after the show was over, but she's a housemate. And, um, there are several episodes, especially toward the second half of the, um, season where she's barely in them because she was like doing her residency mm. and she just was never around. And so I think they, and then I, from what my wife tells me, cause I never watched the season after that, which I think was London from what my wife tells me that that season was incredibly boring because they just kind of lived like you would in your early 20s. (laughs) You came home, we flopped around. You didn't do much, and that's when they started tweaking things to cast a little more for drama, and really making it this sort of manipulated reality. Um, MTV did a couple of other shows that toe that line. There was a show they did back in 2003 that was definitely, definitely reality. It was called The Paper, and it was this uh, reality show about a high school newspaper staff that was um, you know they, they picked the they picked the, the staff and they picked the right people to follow but it came as again it it, it it stayed away from the sort of ridiculousness of like Jersey Shore which was starting up around the same time um, I think they had intended 16 and pregnant and then teen mom to right. originally be something very close to we're gonna show this as it really is but it didn't turn out that way. And for years, and I think the show still pops up occasionally, they had a documentary quote series called true life. That was as close to, it was almost like a mix of a news magazine and documentary show where they would, they would have a topic and they would follow two or three people as they dealt with. um, I'm obese. (laughs) I'm getting married. I'm flat broke. Those were really interesting to watch.
1: Uh, from Um, uh, from that same era bravo tv had mm -hmm. a couple that i remember that was again in the days before mtv was what mtv is now and before bravo was what bravo is now yeah they did two in that 2002 2003 era one was called the it factor which followed i don't remember six or eight or ten struggling actors and actresses in new york in uh, los angeles uh-huh. During pilot season and uh, staffing season. Mm-hmm. And just showed the you know rehearsal process and going to auditions and occasionally getting cast on a show. But most often not. And sort of documenting the struggle uh, of that life. I think that may have gone two seasons. And then also one uh, that revolved specifically around Cirque du Soleil. Mm-hmm. and a number of uh about the you know uh, ramping up for a new show of uh, whatever the latest version of cirque du soleil that that okay. that, that, yeah. that, that particular show that they were going to do and mm. in, involving you know some acts who were on the fringes in terms yeah. of whether they would get in or not and in some cases being in the being in the cast but not always uh, you know debatable whether they would actually you know make it into the final cut of the, of the you know whatever the show that yeah. show ended up being that sort of thing. So in those two, you got the sense that they were just legitimate documentaries. You know, they weren't setting anything up. they weren't seeding anything. They were just following in, in both cases following creative performers and so they had that 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 thing in common and uh, really interesting just to yeah. sort of see what 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 that life the the reality yeah. of that type of life can be you
0: know who uh, did a very a show um sort of similar to that and you wouldn't have thought it would have been as interesting as it was but um oprah winfrey Uh, around the time they launched uh, the own Mm, network. mm -hmm. One of the first shows on it was, I don't remember the name of it. It was basically a behind the scenes of the last season of the Oprah Winfrey show. And it was an episode to episode show about what it took to make the last season and what goes into it. And it's, it's all logistical stuff. It's all sitting there and watching these people freak out because guests are coming and, and stuff and how we're putting this together, whatever. But, Uh, It was more fascinating sometimes than the actual Oprah Winfrey show. Um, There there were uh, other cable channels over the years have run kind of on the other end of things, not a reality show, but those sort of nostalgia shows where, uh, you know, VH1 for years got all of its ratings from like, I love in the seventies, I love the eighties, I love the nineties. But VH1 and uh, VH1 really more than MTV at this point, and then uh, at that point, and then um, ESPN or NFL Network and some of the more, like you said, niche networks and stuff uh, would occasionally do nostalgia based uh, series or specials that were a little more informative rather than a bunch of like C list celebrities sitting around right. saying, like, you know, hey, I remember a Rubik's Cube. Uh, two that come to mind was um, one was called The Drug Years Mm. and it was a miniseries that ran on VH1 and it literally was starting from about the early, kind of the pre-history but mostly starting in the 1950s with like LSD and moving into up until the present which was like the early to mid 2000s where they started to talk talk about heroin and cocaine and meth and things like that and And the history of the drug trade and then the war on drugs and how popular culture factored into a lot of these things. It was fascinating. Um, And uh, an offshoot of that, there was one, I think it was one about the sexual revolution. There was one Mm -hmm. about, it was called Planet Rock, which was hip hop and cocaine and crack. But not done in a accusatory way done talking to the actual people who were there and them talking about how there was on some level always a sometimes very close connection between drugs and you know hip hop and rap and sometimes it was just a little more tenuous but you know depending on who you're talking with you really really fascinating stuff uh, and they've done they've done some others um, New York 77 The Hottest Year in Hell is about punk in, in 1977 in New York is some great great stuff so um, And and then I, I had a question. I guess, I, was here. Gonna
1: say, I guess to some extent behind the music counts.
0: Yeah, I would say it does. Um, I Some of the there are some behind the music episodes that were better than others because some of them were obvious, obviously glorified promotional films for whatever that artist's next album was like Madonna, for instance. But when it was an act that hadn't seen the light of day in a number of years or had a very famous story to tell, like a Milli Vanilli. Mm-hmm. The Meatloaf one I remember being pretty good.
1: The, the, but, that, but I think the Meatloaf one fits into some of that similar, what you were saying before, is that the Meatloaf behind the music was a few months before the VH1-produced Meatloaf biopic. Yeah. And so the yeah. behind the music was uh, was a little more uh, kindly. Yes. You know, so it it, because it was tied into this, to this mm-hmm. other thing. The one yeah. that I remember most uh, vividly is: is it Def Leppard, the drummer that lost his arm yes, in the Def accident? Leppard. Yeah. That is one when it was running in rotation, I would watch every time it was on. Just what a fascinating story. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and the behind the music did that story justice. The one about sticks. And the one about Journey are
0: both really good because the lead singers of both, uh, Dennis DeYoung in terms of sticks and then um, Steve Perry in terms of Journey, they both come off horribly on those shows. Like, there's so much bitterness that still exists, especially in the, in the Sticks one. There's so much bitterness that still seem to exist between like Dennis DeYoung and Tommy Shaw and the rest mm-hmm. of the Sticks that it was not going to be the nice reunion at the end. <laughs> right. um, it was just like the band is moving on with a new lead singer and you are stuck whining about how you felt jilted. And it was, you know, so it was one of those things where, and, and he doesn't exactly come off as you know, a sane, he kind of comes off as kind of a
2: prank.
0: (laughs) So I had a question here that I'd asked, and I think we, I think it's an easy answer is, uh, when you're talking about documentaries and you're talking about nonfiction, but the idea of art and and it comes in because it is film and film is an art form. And then the question of objectivity, because we were just talking about promotion. Um, Documentaries can be very straightforward and tell a story. It can be done in a very artsy fashion or they can be flat out propaganda Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and uh, they can be marketing, obviously. But if you go back to and I wrote down um, Triumph of the Will Mm. and Leni Riefenstahl and the Third Reich and which was is technically a documentary. But is a very
1: well-crafted piece of propaganda. And I, th- and I just I, th- I think if you again make the comparison to nonfiction books, you know uh-huh. nonfiction books include self-help. They include you know lighter fare like that a, a celebrity memoir. Yeah. but then they also include you know, science journals and historical <laughs> and archaeological, astrophysics. Yeah, or uh, seven forty one, comic book people know what that means in the Dewey decimal <laughs> system. Um, uh, yes, my one of my two
0: favorite Dewey decimals. <laughs> the other one was the whatever, and I I, I forgot which one the paranormal one was. <laughs> it might have been just the zero 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 or whatever, but that was one of the two nonfiction sections in <laughs> the library. I'd always go to. But all of that.
1: But all of that is nonfiction, yeah. and they are. V- are wildly different. And, you know, I think if you consider documentaries in that same way, that they are wildly different. You know, they, there are things that are wildly different that can all be considered documentaries. And I think part of that is the level of objectivity. And part of that is the level of, of artistry, Mm -hmm. uh, creativity that the filmmaker is bringing the presence of the filmmaker, either, literally the presence of the filmmaker mm-hmm. in the in the documentary or just their uh, stylistic fingerprints being on the being on the piece so i think those are sort of some of the places where uh, these styles of documentaries can can diverge in, in addition to obvious things like the subject matter but in terms of the yeah. of, of how the documentary is, is is put together i think those are some of the some of the axes you know whether, whether there's a specific point point, whether the goal is to tell a story or is the goal to change minds
0: yeah cuz there's there's a few if we're talking just if i'm giving a very uh you know 30 10,000 of view of t- like styles of documentary filmmaking you have some where you have a uh, Ken burns employs this all the time you have a narrator You have interviews. You have either historical recreation. If We're talking history documentaries for a moment. You either have historical recreation, which is very often done for things that are prior to 1900. Yes. Or you have archival footage because the archival footage is available. Or you have one that is – you have one where there is no narrator and it's just strung together either by captions or title cards. And there's a narrative that's easy to follow. Or you have the Michael Moore, Morgan Spurlock type of documentary where the, like you just said, the, the director is essentially a character. Now, he's not even the host, he's a character within the documentary. So, Supersize Me
2: mm-hmm.
0: is about what fast food can do to your body in the purview of Morgan Spurlock doing this very informal experiment yes. on himself where he eats nothing but, um, I think he just eats nothing but McDonald's yes. for 30 days yes. and, and just filming it along the way. in this sort of very in a, in a partially cinema verite style, but also, you know, very, things are very well crafted. And um, so if you, if you're looking at those three and, and they have varying levels of objectivity Sometimes they have varying levels of accuracy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, what to you but makes again,
1: of, I was gonna say. Yeah. But again, the the level of accuracy or not, that's part of where the art versus the objectivity comes in. Mm-hmm. And and I think to to uh, uh, assume the question that you're about to ask. <laughs> yeah. What makes a good <laughs> in, documentary? In terms to you? of which is more important yeah you know, part of it from from a, I, I try to be as objective uh, as I can about this. I think some of it is there's a point at which you say how effectively did the filmmaker get across the point they wanted to get across, as opposed to how much do I agree or disagree with the film you know with the point you, know, you, you, I, you don't want to get to that you know when I, when I find myself in that position, I do try to step back and say, You know, perhaps if they are provoking an emotion in me, even if it's—I don't think that's true—or wait a minute, come on, that—that—that might be effective filmmaking because it is provoking a reaction in me.
0: Yeah, I I think you're—I think you're right. I think that um, my my issue comes with when you have a documentary that is obviously trying to make an argument. As opposed to just objectively showing me what happened. So a uh, bowling for Columbine, for instance, is trying to make an argument, and and a lot of his argument I agree with, and some of it I disagree with. And um, if you have, if you're showing me a documentary, you're showing me a point where where I'm going in, not sure if I'm going to agree with it, and I can shoot holes in your argument. Because you're not being thorough enough mm-hmm. in the facts that you're offering as proof, or or my counterpoint is just as strong. You know, uh, my counterpoint can be as strong, but it's it, your your point is not as airtight. Like I can sit there and just pick at it and pick at it, pick at it. There's, then you're not doing a very good job. There,
1: and there are a few specific things, just very specifically about Bowling for Columbine, where mm-hmm. specifically in the uh, Charlton Heston questions yeah. that are simply edited out of context you know answering mm-hmm. answering different questions putting two statements together that were either from different events or different moments perhaps even of the same speech uh, he does the same thing in fahrenheit 911 yeah. too
0: which frustrated me because uh, just not, I don't want to get too political, but it fru- that frustrated me.
1: And I, I I will mention a, a a current event one again not to get too political, but one of the mm-hmm. recent ones that I watched was Brexit the movie, mm-hmm. um, which, as you said, you know my notes were this is a term paper, there's a thesis statement, yeah. and the document is setting out to prove that particular case. It was effective at proving that case there was of course another mm-hmm. case that another movie could have made as well yeah um, you know but it it but that just that that idea of this is a research paper you know this is an yeah. argumentative paper that i'm watching and understanding the the difference between the documentary that's trying that and you can judge that on a different scale perhaps than the mm-hmm. documentary that is trying to be journalism, and and it's gonna, and, and and to me both of those are reasonable uses, yeah, for the documentary form, and I th- but I, th- I think a viewer needs to go in, in, knowledgeable, you know, pre, mm-hmm. preloaded as, as, yeah. as to what, you know, what, the, the, the type of documentary you're about to sit down and watch.
0: I've only I will only admit. To, to seeing a couple of Michael Moore films than the one Morgan Sparlock film. Do you like it when the documentarian puts him or herself as the character, as the person who's experienced, or is is it either or I mean what, what makes for a good one of those and what what makes yeah, for one Yeah, you know, I, I
1: don't wanna say, you know, one works and one doesn't work all the time. I think a blanket statement like that is is, is, yeah, is yeah. Hard to defend. I think what makes it work partially is, well, I I think in terms of Michael Moore, there's a little bit of diminishing returns with his, simply Mm -hmm. because in Roger and me, we didn't know who the heck this guy was. That's true. This guy was an everyman. Um, And in that sense, it was effective. And I think to some extent, that might become less and less effective because, oh, that's Michael Moore. Yeah. Or oh, that's left-wing filmmaker Michael Moore, or 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 that's truth teller Michael Moore. I mean, whatever it is, we you know we 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 might think you're. When he shows up, he's not an anonymous character, which he was in Roger and Me. Um, one where and 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 it depends how inextricably linked the person host, quote unquote, if you will. Is to mm-hmm. the material one that I've seen recently. True. Is um, in search of Steve Ditko, which was okay. from about ten years ago, and it was I've heard of it. Yeah, I've never it was seen the uh, British British TV presenter Jonathan Ross, and his I uh, mean most of it is interviews with people uh, talking about Ditko, and it does end with him and Neil Gaiman in mm-hmm. New York City attempting to interview Steve Ditko, And that worked for me because it was his personal journey. It was his fandom. Mm -hmm. So that sort of shtick of, you know, I want to track this guy down. He's reclusive and I want to, and I want to meet him. And then interspersed are, you know, his, his defense, the rest of the movie, his, his answer to the unasked question, yeah. which is who Steve Ditko and why would you want to meet him? Mm-hmm. So it's interviews. There is a amazing interview with Stan Lee in there about who created Spider-Man. Huh. That is absolutely it. It is it's it's very interesting because I, I I I can't recreate it correctly. You know it it comes down to the the exact quotes and and, and all of that, but it is. It is Stan's clear belief that whoever comes up with the idea is the creator. Huh. And 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 it's it's very I don't want to go any 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 further than no, that, no, yeah. but there's part that you it's really, really interesting. But in that case, the insertion of the person as the host as character really worked because it was mm-hmm. his sort of his. His personal journey. Another recent uh, documentary uh, produced by, of all people, Adam Crolla, uh, recently did one about Paul Newman's race driving career. Huh. And there was a, in, in, in various versions of the cut, Crolla Car- himself is doing most of the interviews. And there are various versions, you know, early cuts of the film where he is a character. And at some point towards the end, they decided to to remove that. So the final cut of the movie is just uh, uh, archival footage and interviews. And there might, it might be his voice as narrator. I, I don't know. But mm-hmm. they've you know, removed him asking the questions. Okay. And they've removed him in terms of, well, we're on the road now going out to... Wherever to talk to whoever, you know those sorts of yeah. interstitial things. They cut that out, so they they made the choice to remove the you know, famous person, yeah. the host, uh, as a character in in the documentary. So uh, you know, the obvious the obvious answer to the question you asked before I started <laughs> my uh, my mo- monologue ten minutes ago is <laughs> ready. It depends. It depends.
0: Because <laughs> I was thinking of Super Size Me, and I know that I have people I know who do not like Morgan Spurlock, yeah, and yet I really like that movie, mm-hmm. and I think it's because I saw it around the same time I read Eric Schlosser's book Fast Food Nation, right. and. And there was a there was a fictional movie made of Fast Food Nation. Although I don't, that was one of those books that I don't think you really needed to adapt right. into, into anything because you could just read it for what it was. But Super Size Me is almost like a great companion to that. And Spurlock had the kind of Michael Moore thing going at the time where you didn't know who this guy is, and he, aside from the kind of handlebar mustache he had, which is a little more common today than it was in the early two thousands, he looked like. You know, oh,
1: sorry that like, that, I'm I'm stuck with that image now. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, you got he's got
0: them. Aside from that, he just looked like a guy you'd see on in line at McDonald. I mean, just you know, he, he was an average guy, and um, I think it really really works. The sh- the things to me that really work, and sometimes they are they are kind of fall under the purview of documentary, and sometimes they don't. Are almost like travel programs, Anthony like Anthony right, Bourdain's right. No Reservation series, which is sometimes fascinating. And sometimes I get really tired of his crap, um, because he's got he has a shtick, um, and you got but I go in knowing that shtick because I had read Kitchen Confidential. Um, there was an Alton Alton Brown who hosted hmm. one of my all-time favorite Food Network shows called Good Eats for years. Did a uh, series back in the early two thousands called Feasting on yes, Asphalt. That
1: was interesting.
0: Yeah, it was a motor it was a motorcycle trip of him and and his crew around the across the country visiting different tourist traps and um, different people and and almost like looking at this this sort of culinary history of the United States and I think there was a second season at one point too um, that was really cool and he was the host and he was already a well known personality right. uh, at least to people on the Food Network and it worked so
1: well. I, I um, think and I that first one they were doing Route sixty six. I think, so. I think so. I yeah, think in the second one they bit. went up and down the Mississippi. Mississippi, the north, yeah. North south versus east west, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And uh, so so that's where uh, but I think of like what makes a good documentary and what makes a bad documentary and and I and I had I had written down the note um, a, a really good documentary would be the tone matches the subject matter. Oh, like okay. uh, Did you ever watch Ken Burns' Dust Bowl documentary? No. It was it was only two parts. Only two parts, so you're not you're not in there for 18 hours. The tone, the music, everything, the editing, everything he does in that documentary matches the heaviness of the subject. Baseball, pardon the pun, is hit or miss where that comes in. Yeah. Because there are portions the I'd say the first few innings of the baseball documentary really hit it right. Nope. Again, puns <laughs> aside, when you get to like through the 50s, the 60s, especially toward more of the modern day stuff, it gets boring and in a way that I didn't want it to get boring because baseball can be an exciting sport. It can be a very boring sport, trust me, but it can be a very exciting sport and he didn't capture – the excitement because I think he went to the well of the same type mm. of music too much or the mm. same editing choices. And he didn't adjust the way he crafted the film according to the time of the game. I,
1: I wonder if one of the things about sports documentaries in general, which is uh, a pretty good sized topic actually, but I think one of the things about sports documentaries is are the do the people who are watching this, do they know the ending already? some, some sports documentaries you don't and obviously in in baseball, the earlier you are in the history of baseball, those earlier mm-hmm. innings I was less likely to know the stories so by the time you got into the 70s, 80s, and 90s there was a sense of telling me a story I already knew yeah. and I think with sports documentaries in particular you have to be careful about that if mm-hmm. If the outcome is well known, then there's a different story you have to tell as opposed to the out as opposed to the point of the documentary is this obscure sport or obscure team. And you actually don't know if they win the championship or not. You don't know if this guy makes the Olympic team or not because he's, you know, he does the triple jump or something. Right. Mm -hmm. So you don't know the outcome. And and. Obviously, a sports movie fiction or sports drama a documentary has the built-in drama of the competition, yeah. of the season. And so if you don't know the outcome, I think you're telling a different kind of story than if you do know the outcome. And I think that may be a little bit of where baseball struck out <laughs> in its later innings. You started it's, it. It was an ambitious oh, documentary. It was, definitely. Because
0: you're not focusing on one team. You're not focusing on one player. This isn't like um, ESPN's 30 for 30, where they will right. do a documentary. on. They just, just did like a five-part um, OJ Simpson one that is a great companion piece to the FX miniseries that aired <laughs> earlier this spring. And I recommend watching both of them. I, I'm a little OJ'd out at this point, but they're both worth their salt. But like, it's not like the, the Bo Jackson one was fascinating. Uh, the Brian Bosworth one. Also fascinating. But that's one person, and that's following one person. The Ricky Williams one was sad in a
1: way. I was a fan um, of they, they did – of course, at at this point, you really can't say 30 for 30 anymore because yeah. it's probably 300 for 30 or however many they've done now. I mean, it's sort of spun off. <laughs> then they also did a series related to uh, women's sports in particular, a Title IX. Oh, that was a good one. And yeah. uh, the Katarina Vitt one in particular mm-hmm. about – Role as a as Germany became mm-hmm. reunified, and, yeah. and and that was a really interesting one. As well. in, in some respects, it's because it was telling a story I didn't know. it yeah. it, well, it was not about Katarina Witt versus Debbie Thomas at the Olympics. I, yes. I knew how that story ended.
0: <laughs> um, postscript to the story, and and you can probably find it the Washington Post a few months ago. There was a there was a feature in the Washington Post on Sunday about Debbie Thomas, who is like living broke I in a trailer in, in rural Virginia. It was like, and I remember reading about like really uh, fascinating, fascinating piece, the obscurity of certain things. Uh, if you look at, and I think maybe the distance, like you said, the distance between the subject and the, and the filmmaker in terms of time can also be like this. If you're doing a, if you're doing a documentary about the 69 Mets, this 27 Yankees, um, you know, or something that has happened and is well-documented way in the past, you're going to have a different, you know, the ending of the story. So you kind of craft things around the ending to the story. Uh, there's a wonderful documentary called Do You Believe in Miracles? Which is the story of the 1980 U.S. hockey team. And it is a great, great documentary. It was made before Herb Brooks passed. Uh, so he's in it. And, and they just, they go through that whole thing. And we all know the ending of that story. But they take careful – they craft it in a way that just makes – it's really gripping. But then you have things that are about – they're obviously being filmed as they happen. So the filmmakers do not know what's going to happen. And there's a – there is a documentary that I've shown the last couple of years of my English class called Louder Than a Bomb. It is about a spoken word poetry competition in Chicago. Uh, the movie is from about 2010, 2011 or so. And it follows uh, teams from four high schools. And basically the competition is you and your team get together several performance pieces that you write and you perform for a panel of judges at this huge citywide competition, you know, and there you go, and 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 they follow certain kids, and one kids from, um, you know, like one team's from the north side, like north side of Chicago, with a very kind of nice suburb. Um, there's another team where they follow this one girl who, uh, you know, is who has a lot of potential. She's but her, you know, she's got family issues, and then there's one, the one guy who's going to magnet high school so that he doesn't have to go to the really terrible high school in his neighborhood in the south side of Chicago. And then you have the team from the one really kind of, you know, quote-unquote, the bad school, you know. And A, the diversity of the picture is just amazing, and B, just the the way this is shown. And you don't know what's going to happen, because it was obvious that they were just kind of filming this as it went along, so they have to structure the story that way, and um, and it's it makes for a really really fascinating piece where you don't really care about the outcome so much as you care about the people who you're you're getting to know.
1: There, there's a, a couple of of similar ones that that uh, come to mind to me. One is Word Wars, which was about mm-hmm. competitive Scrabble, okay. and one is similarly named. I think it's Word Play, which was about a crossword puzzle competition. These came out at roughly the same time. And I can't remember the specific details of which this applies to, but my recollection, they were formatted the same way as as, as you described, you know, following X number of people in their yeah. preparation beforehand. And my recollection is that in one of the movies, none of the people that they followed made it very far in the tournament. <laughs> so, I mean, that's one of the problems, right? Yeah. That, that you have, you know, a tournament may have, you know, a thousand people in it. And we're following seven of them and, you know, they all get eliminated on day two of the week long tournament or you know, whatever, yeah. you know, whatever the setup was. Uh,
0: Spellbound's kind of the same way. Right.
1: That, that, that may be, yeah, that's right. Spelling be. That, 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 yeah. that may be one of the ones I'm thinking of. But yeah, yeah. it was that where, again, whichever one of these competition, uh, mm-hmm. you know, sort of live filming, you know, uh, the filming being, you know, at, at the same time sort of yeah. <laughs> fell apart in that sense. But you can still tell – I mean you can still have a great documentary
2: oh, out yeah, of that. Yeah. I, th-
1: I think one important dis- distinction I would make is if you have a good story, maybe it's easier to make a good documentary. Mm-hmm. But you can still fail. And it, and, it and, and even if you don't have – a great underlying story maybe. You can still you can still tell a great story of that. You know, I mean I think again that's something to try to separate and sometimes with sports you can see that. You know, sports documentary. It's a great dramatic story in sort of a dud of a of a movie because it hasn't hit the right, you know, elements in terms of, of the filmmaking. Or the, yeah. or there's some which can cover something very obscure, or a person you've never heard of, or a or a very particular, you know, type of type of uh, you know, sub genre or, or or subculture. Whether it's mm-hmm. uh, the, the Scrabble or crossword puzzles or Larpers, I'm thinking of the movie yes. Darkon or King of Kong. Mm-hmm. You know those sorts of movies. Um, yeah. Where even or if it's, it's even if the topic you don't think going in is going to interest you. Yeah,
0: uh, murder ball.
1: Exactly. Again,
0: right. Wheelchair rugby, mm-hmm. like. Who and, and that is a fascinating There's a hero and a villain in that movie.
2: Um,
0: we I'm looking, I'm, I have my list in front of me because I, I printed it out and, um, of what we have, and and it was color coded because in you know, a retentive has a hyphen, as Michael <laughs> Elias is famous for saying. We had. Highlighted the ones that we had both seen, and, and I don't know. How, uh, it's it's updated to a point, and King of Kong is on there. And let, let's let's talk about a few of these because we've kind of gone through like what makes a documentary, what we like and what we don't like about certain documentaries, or how it kind of all depends on the actual finished product certain formats and things and you're right there are like there are history documentaries that I've seen um, on every channel from the History Channel to Nat Geo to PBS where I'm like was this just thrown together at the last minute this is terrible or they perpetuate notions of history that are more myth making than they are actual historical accuracy which kind of gets to me from time to time you know, on, on um,
1: King of Kong I don't know if this is yeah. uh, 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 exactly chronologically true but my sense is is that mm-hmm. that was sort of the start of this? Let's deep dive into a subculture.
0: Yeah, there's of movies, a um, type of, of I documentaries. Think, I want to say Trekkies
1: came mm. first, okay, right? That's probably true.
0: Um, based on because I just watched Trekkies last night. And I've seen King of Kong, and I want to say Trekkies beats it by just a couple of years. But it's it's on. It is on a list, and, and you can find this on Wikipedia, uh, those of you out there. Morgan Spurlock hosted the show. Some cable network years ago did 50 documentaries you must see before you die. And I will tell you, the list is worth going through. It's almost it's up there with like the AFI 100 list of, you know, who cares how they're ranked? Just here are 50 movies some of you may never have heard of. Go see these movies. And, and King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters, which is the full yes. title of Um, If you're unfamiliar with it, is a movie that really chronicles a guy named Steve Weeby and his quest to beat the highest score ever on the game of Donkey Kong, which at the time was held by uh, Billy Mitchell, I believe his name is, who has some of the best hair. (laughs) He's just this character in a sense. But it does dive into the subculture of people who still really worship the feet of classic arcade games and uh, and are still trying to just kind of keeping that, that alive. In the same way Trekkies yes. from the late 90s, and there's a sequel to it, which I haven't okay. seen,
1: um, I, is... I have to correct myself before we get mm-hmm. too far. Spellbound, Darkon... Word wars all came out before fistful of dollars or fistful of quarters oh, okay so maybe right. just in my i think uh i think probably uh for me personally king of kong was the first of these that i saw and it may have been my reintroduction to uh yeah. to documentaries as closer to an adult um yeah. but but it, it it actually might be building on some of these mm-hmm. other a uh, similar type of type of movies there are a
0: few before this boom in the '90s and into now that that are that people um, really do pay attention to, like the Thin the Thin Blue Lion and Grey Gardens, and um, neither of which I've seen yet. But um, yeah. but uh, but yeah, The King of Kong just is is a great one because it mixes the competition aspect of it with examining the history and the
1: subculture that surrounds uh, nerds, And video game, and nerds. to some extent. This is the story of an outsider trying to break in to this, to our
0: cloistered,
1: (laughs) walls up high, everyone stay out subculture. And that aspect of it is really interesting. Yeah,
0: because Steve Weeby is this like, he's like a part-time teacher who started, or he was a teacher at the time, but he had started, he had a Donkey Kong machine. um, And he had started doing this. I think when he was unemployed or something there, it's basically they frame it in a way that like he started doing this because it was a way for him to have an outlet because he was just, his life was just not going the way he wanted it to. And then things started to pick up, but this became this thing for him. And, and I think, and it really makes you, you really feel for the guy and not in the sort of way of look at this normal guy, trying to beat up these nerds. Uh, But Billy Mitchell is, he's not the villain of the piece so much as there is an arrogance about him that you love and hate at the same time. And then there are ancillary people in this movie who you're like, uh, in the same way of Trekkies, which I just yes. watched, whom I recognize from my own, you know, travels and running in circles of comic book fans, you know, and obsessive toy collectors and, and, and those sorts of people. And, um, but they both treat their subject as they are sympathetic to them, they're not mocking them. And I right. think that's yes. that's what it, yes. it is endearing about those documentaries. They're not – Trekkies could very well have been look at these freaks because there are some things about some of the people. In Trekkies, you're just like, you know, you go to work wearing a Federation badge and a phaser and a tricorder, okay, and you show up for jury duty in your Star Trek uniform and like the one kid gets the, um the one kid gets a uniform to cosplay at a, <laughs> at a con and he's sitting there. It's like really good, but Oh, this is wrong. And this is what he's like nitpicking the details on the uniform. And you're just like, at the same time, on, on one hand, you are kind of like, you're a little bit too far with this. But at the other hand, you're like, no, I recognize this. And, and they're not trying to judge the people. They're just trying to show it as there is. And the same thing with with the King of Kong. You know, there are some people in there where you're just like, this is your life. But at the same time, you're like, I totally know what you're talking about.
1: So, we didn't talk about Room 237 during the record, did we? No. Okay. I, no, we talked about that before that. To, to go there just in terms of non-judgmentalism, which oh, is to me what's amazing about you that. Know, or, or, let's go on, there okay.
0: now. Yeah, Room 237, if you're unfamiliar with this movie, is about... uh, It's ostensibly about The Shining, uh, the the Stanley Kubrick film, not the Stephen King book. And it's specifically about theories people have had from watching The Shining and deciphering what they think are hidden meanings of what the movie is actually about, as opposed to what it's actually about. (laughs) And it is... I think there's like nine... There's different sections, and there's several different people who posit that instead of this movie being about Jack Nicholson's character going crazy and trying to kill his family because he's in this haunted hotel, which is a very loose description <laughs> of The Shining, one guy's like, no, this movie symbolizes the genocide of Native Americans because of a Calumet baking soda can on a, behind Scott McCarther's head in one scene. And then there's this one woman who looks at the background, like they look at the backgrounds as though she talks about how the one guy's office has a window in it and she's mapped out the entire hotel. And there's one, no way there should be a window there. And this window <laughs> fascinates her. And then later on, she says, there's this skier on a poster in the background of the game room. And she says, no, that's a minotaur. And then there's the other guy who connects this whole thing to the moon landing conspiracy in Kubrick's other films. And I'm watching this movie this morning and I was just – and I had said to you, and I'll say it again, it's the very definition – and I'm sorry I'm being judgy. It's the very be- definition of bat guano crazy. I mean it's just like – and I'm an English teacher. <laughs> Looking for hidden meaning and symbolism in books do. of literature is what I do for a living. We, and We and call that the spring then, semester. Yeah, and even then I'm like,
1: what? But But, <laughs> but what I like about that movie is that the mm. movie – does not judge these people. The movie yes. does not mock these people. The movie allows these people to present their wackadoodle thoughts mm-hmm. and interpretations, and just and you were saying you were talking about uh, uh, King of Kong and, and and Trekkies as being movies yeah. that are non judgmental. That's that's where it clicked to me. That room two thirty seven. Totally different topic. Totally mm-hmm. different group of nutballs uh, of people. But again, the film itself does not judge. And to me, that is part of a good documentary. It it
0: also does – the one thing I did like about it, because there was a point where I did want to turn it off, but I had this commitment <laughs> to finishing what I start. That was and, my bad. Was that, just, was,
1: that, that was my fault.
0: No, it's okay. I was just kind of like – I was just like, I don't know how much more of this I can make. Or it was more along the line of – all right, I get the point. Right. But um, the one thing I will give it a lot of credit for is that it, it employs – Purely archival footage or um, movie footage. It's there's there are interviews. They're all audio. So there's no single shot of a person talking to you. Uh, as opposed, you know, like in in a lot of documentaries, you have a one-on-one interview with somebody. Um, but in a lot of documentaries, you have um, where you'll have somebody talking over the footage of something they're doing. This is people talking over movie clips. So what the filmmakers do is they essentially show. And don't tell right. in that when somebody is talking about here is this aspect of this scene and this whole subliminal messaging thing in this scene, they slow the scene down to show you frame by Zoom frame as the person,
1: like the window, the poster, whatever it is
0: to illustrate what that person's talking about. So that in the very least you can see it for yourself and make that judgment yourself. So I give them a lot of credit for that. I just, the people in the movie are to me, I was just like, this is this is even more nuts than some of the stuff we've done on Comics Pod.
1: <laughs> on, on the choice to not show the people, I wonder if that again is an attempt to not uh, to avoid potential stereotyping that's based possible. on what they may or may not look like, or or the fact that that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. What matters is what these people think. Mm-hmm. And again, I, th- I think that's just an interesting directorial choice.
0: Yeah, And now there are other There are other um, ones that we've both seen And uh, you had mentioned that you just finished Watching this the other day and I found this Fascinating uh, finding Vivian Mayer mm. which I had Discovered because of an article I read on BuzzFeed or some mm. site or something and somebody had mentioned That you know here's all these pictures this woman took And it was part of this and then I Then I googled her And saw that there was this documentary It was available on Netflix Yada 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 I watched it And um, Vivian Mayer was the she worked the like a nanny, I think, yes. in, in in for for just wealthy families in New York City, and um was an amateur photographer who took thousands yes. of photographs over the course of decades and was a hoarder in a huge sense. And as the movie goes on, it's clear that she has probably has some sort of I mean I'm no psychologist she yeah. may have been suffering something from something like an o- o- obsessive compulsive disorder or something that, that leads to people hoarding a lot of different things um, especially because later in her life the end of her life does as I remember it was very very sad yes. but um, this is somebody who had passed on and it's this uh, it's like when you're when you are going through the belongings of the deceased of a family member because you gotta, because you gotta clear out the house, because you gotta sell the house, or whatever, you know. Because mm-hmm. you are doing it for practical reason, and you come across it's like, but it turns into an archaeological dig. Yes. I, I and and a so a there is that and b the subject matter of a lot of her photographs is New York yeah. City, mm-hmm. which to me is fascinating because I am from the New York area and New York City and its history, especially
1: in the twentieth century, is fascinating to me. To me, this one was an A plus story in a B-plus documentary. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think the story itself of this this fascinating story yeah. carries the documentary. This mm-hmm. is one where the filmmaker um, is part of the story. Yeah. His discovery and attempt to restore and attempt to sell and an uh, attempt to get some of the hundreds of roles of, unde- of undeveloped film developed, yeah. and I think there was a little too much of him.
0: It does intrude yeah. uh, on, the, on, on the better part of it, where, where it's when you really are learning more about her and, and seeing the pictures she took. I also uh, thought in that tracks. one there
1: were two thematic things that they sort of didn't go into enough for me. One is her the right to her privacy. They sort of blew by that. Uh, there were a lot of people saying, "I'm sure she wanted these films, these pictures to be seen. Why would she take them if she didn't want them to be seen?" That—that's to me is an interesting ethical, artistic question. That's a good you question. Know, do we have the right to develop? Uh, they talked a little bit. They—they they went through very specifically. And said she doesn't have any next of kin, so mm-hmm. whoever, so there's a finder's keepers. <laughs> I think going on in terms of who. <laughs> Of who can develop, of yeah. who owns these these pictures now, uh, um, but also there was a, an under, under overcurrent in the movie that art critics, uh, uh, museum curators are mm-hmm. not accepting her film, her pictures, um, the very few um, uh, stagings of her films, exhibits of her film of her. I keep saying films, pictures. of her pictures. Um. And you know, maybe people didn't want to be interviewed. Maybe they didn't. Pres- I, I would like to know why. There were a couple yeah. people in the film, photographers and so on, who were fans of hers, and who said very kind things about her. Her, you know, her her eye, her sense of of, uh, you know, staging, uh, her sense of framing of a, of a photograph, a lot of her, her technical and artistic skills, which which. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the pictures that we see are imp- very impressive. I would have liked to have seen someone from that other side say, yes, but the reason we're not, the reason she's not uh, accepted as a great 20th century photographer is this, or these hmm. these reasons. Now, to be fair, that's not the movie they were making. So, no, I mean, it wasn't. There, there's a point at which I have to step back and say, that's not the story they were telling the story the story of this person is amazing and whatever yeah. form that is like you said it's it's a it's a great newspaper article it was a great um, you know there there have been you know TV segments on yeah. news shows dedicated yeah to the story I think the story is really good the documentary is almost as good yeah her and her photographs are something right out of like
0: a mid twentieth century issue oh, of Life. Yes. Yes. And and which is, I don't, I don't run in the circles of people who are serious photographers or anything like that, or or have look at uh, photography as an art form of that sort of caliber. So I wouldn't know if they how they look upon Life magazine right. if it's something right. that they don't consider. To be artistic because of its yeah, well, um, I, I, obvi- it's mad because it was made for
1: mass appeal. Yeah, I, I wonder if it falls into that sort of mid middle brow range yeah. that it's not highbrow enough for certain museums, but it hits that middle brow. Yeah,
0: and and it's her words. subject matter is everyday people yes. in a way that say Dorothea Lang. Has a lot of very famous photographs that are more associated with very specific events in history, mm-hmm. like the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. And then um, she also has several pictures from the uh, from the Second World War and the Holocaust. So that elevates her a little bit. I think it's maybe the subject matter that is and 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 Vivian Mayer's subjects. Are anonymous as many as the other people are, but they're also the the time frame or the specific events have an anonymity to
1: them as well. There were period pieces than they are actual um, events. But 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 to me the the one of the strengths of the documentary is going about and trying to find out more about her. So we had Mm -hmm. the dual things of the dual storylines of her, you know, her past and the current state of her photographs. So I thought that was a good, again, a good storytelling choice.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, This is going to segue nicely into one documentary that has a very, very heavy subject, but I do want to take a detour to Atari game over really quickly, um, which is a, one hour doc that you can find on Netflix it's about the ET video game and and these guys who made the documentary trying to figure out where the heck these ET cartridges <laughs> are supposedly buried in the desert in New Mexico but the other which is which is fascinating in a sense because you don't know how it's going to turn yes. out but the more fascinating part and I thought they did really well with this but I think it's partially because it's only an hour long so they did not have the shorter time I think made it tighter they did a history of a little bit of Atari and a little bit of the video game, and yes. they really talked to the people who developed it, and, and they made that as fascinating as this. What's really just a piece of pop culture trivia, and um, but I just wanted to I just wanted to mention oh, that
1: because it was something I agree, and to me that was a great business documentary.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, it, was, it 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 was other stuff as well. Yeah, it was a really interesting business documentary, and one of the one of the featured. Uh, interviews, uh, you know, subjects who runs um, throughout it. I don't have the name. I don't have the exact title, but it was something to the effect of the chief operating officer of Warner mm-hmm. Media during this time. I mean, you had a, you, you you had a lot of engineers, a lot of game designers,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, but you also had this this guy who was in it from the big picture,
2: yeah, who was they, talking
1: they... about the financing and the business side of it. Yeah. that I thought that to me, the inclusion of someone at that level of the corporation, as, yeah. as well as the things that he was saying, I thought provided a real strong anchor to that film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, sort of a counterpoint to the game developers, the game designers, the the geeks.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and we'll get it. There's a couple of other entertainment-based documentaries that, that we have both seen that are on our list, but I do, I think, going from Vivian Mayer, who had this fascinating life and there's a fascinating story behind it to a documentary that is fascinating in terms of the story. But it's horrifying, which is capturing the Freedmen's. You had mentioned this and uh, I had I remembered the title, but I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember the
1: premise. Part of what I liked about this, this was one of the ones that I pushed you. Uh, to yes long yeah the, you told me it's room 237 and and uh you know finding Viv- vivian Mayer was the, was one of the ones on the other the other end that you had seen and, mm-hmm. and highly encouraged yeah. me to um to me what's fascinating about this one in addition to the story itself which which we'll get into a bit is the process of making this i mean there's this is not funny, so I'm gonna start with a joke. The movie's not funny. Okay. It's it, no. it's that line about I went to a, I went to a fight and a hockey game broke out. <laughs> this and there's another one that fits into this category as well, I wanted to mention briefly, where the movie starts as one thing mm-hmm. and in the midst of it another story breaks out. And to me that gives you a sense of objectivity. You know, it's Mm -hmm. the person was not necessary. the person was not going to tell this story. They just happened to be there filming something else. In this case, it was about uh, were they birthday clowns or birthday performers in some way, his jugglers or something like that?
0: One of the one of the sons in the Friedman family is one of the most sought after guys who performs right. as a clown/musician at uh, yes. children's birthday parties and, and he that's what he was originally going to be filming yes
1: and the the director was filming I don't know if it was just um just that that person or a broader um documentary mm-hmm. about you know clowns and birthday performers i I, I, yeah. I think that's what it was a little broader than that mm-hmm. and part of what he did um in addition to doing some filming was he gave I guess that that Friedman a video camera right to to to, to be taking some home video uh, mm-hmm. and then this story of sexual abuse starts yeah.
2: um
1: yeah. these charges and you know so it turns from one thing into a family drama legal drama all of these things happening
0: yeah And um, because the father had been um, he was a teacher Mm -hmm. and he was also running um, like computer classes out of his basement. And this was in the 80s, I believe. And sometime in I think it was the mid 1980s this uh, I think it was I want to say it was like 1987 he was accused arrested and eventually convicted as was his son not the clown but the right. brother there were three sons of molesting and in some cases uh, some of the accusations have used involved uh, sexually assaulting boys in the in the basement um, when they were supposedly doing computer classes and there's um, and it's this—you're right. It's this whole drama that unfolds with interviews of all the people who were who were involved, um, family home movies, news footage—you know, anything that right. they could get their hands on to show. And it's it becomes just—it becomes more and more difficult to watch as more and more of the details of what was going on comes out.
1: And the end result of that. Is that at, there's at least one, I can't remember who was convicted. There was a conviction after the fact, and yeah. my understanding is that though it's the, the 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 documentary is is you know attempts to report these fairly objectively. My understanding is <laughs> that the filmmaker believes that they're innocent.
0: Yeah, I think it it started because I I looked up the Wikipedia page for it because I was trying to remember, like, why I didn't remember this happening because I was – around that time this this broke, I was probably about, like, 10 years old, um, and there was another case around that same summer where uh, a man named Joel Steinberg – And his, um, it might have been his wife or his live-in girlfriend, her name was Hedda Nussbaum, beat their daughter to death, their foster daughter to death. And that was huge in the headlines around New York City uh, and Long Island. Um, The Freedmans were from Long Island. They lived in Great Neck, which is... Like Gatsby Country, Long Island. It's like F. Scott Fitzgerald Long Island. That's <laughs> how wealthy that part of Long Island is. Um, literally, that's where part of Gatsby takes place. So I, I know this area, um, and and so, and I'm like, why don't I remember this? But I'm, I'm kind of glad I did because, yeah. but it, but the when, the when I was reading about the filmmakers and having like really did believe that the the son, not the father, the okay. son, gotcha. was innocent, okay. and I think that's the distinction. Okay. I don't think they make any. Qualms about it's that the father went to jail, and they—they they, don't think they ever said you know, the mother. The mother of the Freemans is very hard to figure out whether or not she actually believes her husband is capable of it, because apparently they also had a very volatile relationship toward the end as well. You alternatively don't like this woman and you feel sorry for this woman because you're trying to figure out like where she's coming from. But they do seem to believe that the son was innocent. In the same way, although it does not go the route of um what was the name of those documentaries? Paradise Lost which is about the West Memphis oh, right. mm-hmm. three. I think there was more than one. I think like three of those documentaries yes. about them. And eventually those documentaries actually helped get a retrial uh, very much along the same line of, although I would, I would say that serial, the NPR po- the podcast is a little more objective than the Paradise Lost things, it, it kind of goes a little more toward the side of capturing the Friedman's, even though Sarah Keening is making herself kind of a character in this whole thing because we're following her journey. Um, but I loved, I, I loved the, the the Adnan Syed um, season. The season yes. about Bo yes. was, that was all right. But the Adnan, and, and Adnan Syed, is, as, as of this recording, last week they announced that he's getting a new trial. So, you know, it's kind of interesting how this, Mm-hmm. These things yeah. keep happening.
1: Um, similar to uh, capturing the Freedmans in at least not, – not the subject matter, but sort of mm-hmm. how the story changed is fairly recent documentary Citizen Four, the okay. Snowden documentary. And oh. um, Laura Poitras, the filmmaker, had done various films – on the surveillance state and those sorts of issues, Patriot Act, mm-hmm. um, War on Terror, sorts of issues. And it sounds like she had gathered what she thought was maybe, you know, half of the footage she would need for the third installment of sort of that type of movie. And all mm-hmm. of a sudden she gets an anonymous email from someone who says they've been following her work and has some really interesting information for her and that quickly turns out to be Edward Snowden and the movie is in essence filming this real time and some and and that happens so fast because Snowden knew if I come forward anonymously it's probably 72 hours before they'll figure out it's me NSA pretty good about that stuff right yeah (laughs) so he knew there was a you know, a, a, a clock ticking. And mm-hmm. part of what that movie is, is the behind the scenes of you know, Snowden has smuggled himself out and, and gone to the, the hotel that they're, that they're at. So you have the meetings in, in the room, you have the filmmaker, uh, poetress, Glenn Greenwald, who was uh, the mm-hmm. guy from the guardian. You know they had, they, yeah. they had worked together uh, on breaking these stories and Snowden, and you see them strategizing. You know, how are they going to release this information? Are they? In, are they? Is 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 Greenwald going to? Is he going to publish in the Guardian? Then he'll probably be on TV the next day talking about it, about this this bombshell that the NSA has been, you know, basically. Has access to everything, basically, um, and have been using it. Have, have been using that that access. That's what. That that's the, the point that Snowden that Snowden made. And that it it did not slow down with the change of administrations from Bush to Obama. Uh, it it, hmm. it ramped up, and um, so what is fascinating about that story, or about that documentary, is again this idea of one thing, sort of. Almost happening in real time. You know, you're seeing these decisions being made. So you see, you know, Greenwald and Poitras and Snowden strategizing about how they're going to release the info. Then you get the headline in the Guardian, and then you have you know archival footage of Greenwald on CBS, CNN. <laughs> you know, every TV show <laughs> talking about it. And then you have the decision of when is Snowden going to go public, um, and negotiating with. With various people to get him out of—I can't remember what city there—and they might be in London, getting him mm-hmm. out of there, um, you know, one step ahead of the, one step ahead of the mob. Um, so the subject matter was was interesting, but just the nature of the documentary was really interesting as well. to sort of the way that it happened, and you know, to, you know they had their you know, professional film equipment ready, but of course these days. You can have you can have <laughs> your phone ready and basically, yeah. you know, be a be a live as it happens documentarian uh, as well.
0: Yeah, um, we'll we'll switch gears a little bit because I have uh, of our of our big list here, and I'm looking at the ones that we've highlighted, and uh, and the the only ones that we haven't talked about are one, two, three, four. One of which is March of the Penguins, which is A nature documentary right
1: on on a a little bit bigger scale but that's about
0: on a little bit of a bigger scale um uh, that i would recommend to anybody um because it's it's as it's funny it's cute it's heartbreaking but there the others are all about in some way the entertainment industry and i have a lot i've seen my fair share of entertainment industry documentaries over the years (laughs) two of them deal with more cultural even political issues in terms of entertainment uh, the third one is electric boogaloo the story of <laughs> canon films which there's it's which is just uh, uh, it's just um for me it was a nostalgia trip because so many movies that i saw in the eighties and nineties that I rented from video stores were made by studios like Canon or Orion or Carolco, these these truly independent movie studios that don't get don't don't have the same sort of cachet as a Miramax when you're talking indie filmmaking. Um, and I just wanted to, to just drop the recommendation to go out and see Electric Boogaloo, the story of Films, because it just it is because Golan Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus are just um, I think I think I got the names correct. Are just these two they really are like the living embodiment of Steve Martin and Dan Aykroyd's <laughs> wild and crazy guys and they happen to be filmmakers and they are B movie filmmakers and this is the studio that made Missing in Action, Superman 4, Masters of the Universe, Cobra. They made The Last American Virgin and a number of films where people get naked, oh, wow. uh, <laughs> Bolero. <laughs> and, and, uh, it's just, it's just a hoot to watch. And it, it kind of falls along the lines of like these big personalities and all the different actors they talk about. And these guys telling almost these like war stories of, because they were like a second rate Roger Corman. Yes. And, <laughs> and it's just, it's just a fun, it's a fun movie to watch. It's, it has cultural value in terms of the eighties nostalgia. Now I have
1: two, Two ways that we differ a little bit is that I'm old enough for that not to be nostalgic. And I when you were watching those movies when you were 12, I was 23 or something. So yeah. yeah, yeah. did not hit me at that. Those movies did not hit me at the exact uh, uh, right era. I guess three things. One is that. uh, Two, I owned a little bit of stock in Canon Films. Oh, really? They went public. My grandfather had given me a few thousand dollars. To invest in the market, and I had to do my research and run my ideas by him, and then he would buy the stocks or whatever 10, okay, ten, ten okay. shares of Canon stock or fifty shares of Canon stock. Uh, it did not make me wildly rich, by the way. Um, no. <laughs> so it's it's nostalgic for me in that sense, <laughs> watching my <laughs> watching my uh, my little uh, uh, nest day go down the drain. Um, but, but it but is you- a.
0: Ri- but you got your copy of *Turok: Dinosaur Hunter* number one, it's
1: so, it's so you're sad. I, I've got one signed by Bart Sears, you know, so that is. That's
2: <laughs> great.
1: But that also is a really interesting business movie. Their yeah. business approach, there, and then the fact that they continue to spend and spend and spend. Uh, you know, their their downfall, the sort of their mm-hmm. their rise and fall, is is an interesting business movie. And one thing I wish the documentary had done, this is again one that I watched just a few days ago, because it was on your list, was I wish they had just, you know, Chiron over some of these movies, what their budget was and what their box office was. I yes. think that's actually an important yes. missing part. Cobra, a huge hit. 150 mm-hmm. some million dollars, that's not mentioned. The ones that were bombs, not mentioned. Um, and yeah. I, I think that's an important part of the story. Now, I'm a finance yeah. professor, so of course I think that's an interesting part of the story, an important part of the story. But nonetheless, I think it's an no, important no, part I, of the story.
0: That's a really good point to make um, because it's something that's made in um, books like uh, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls by Peter Biskind, or um, I'm looking at it right now. I'm just trying to read the spine to get the author's name right. John Pearson's uh, Spike, Mike, Slackers, and Dykes, which is about independent film mostly Miramax, and they get it, both of those novel books get into the business end of the 70s in one case and the 80s and 90s in the other, and that that makes for a more complete, more fascinating story. The
1: movie doesn't, the the, the documentary does include the rise and fall, but I I think it it had that, just that one additional piece to explain the fall a little more, but it is a wild, wacky documentary of a couple of larger, one larger-than-life guy And it's almost as large as Life Brother.
0: Yeah, it's um, something along the same lines, but not as – but that is – it's a decent – it's a really good business stock in the sense of you get to see kind of what goes on behind the scenes Um, at Vogue is the September issue. Right. Which just follows Anna Wintour, who is a personality unto herself, um, and putting together the September issue of Vogue, which is the most important issue of the year. Uh, because it is all the fall stuff, the ads and, and stuff. like. So I like, I like things like that. It's why I liked the Isaac Mizrahi documentary Unzipped mm-hmm. because it's about this designer on the rise. My wife, my wife, my wife was like, you have to see this. So we sat down and watched this years ago. It's this designer on the rise and, and somebody who's hungry and him putting together something for New York fashion week and the creative process behind it and the, and the, the risks you're taking and things like that. And th- those are always really interesting. Our other two get a little more political though. Um, one is called this film is not yet rated, which is essentially an attack on the MPAA and the rating system. Um, it's quite a few years old at this point. Uh, but it does not make Jack Valenti look very good. Um, and, and it, the thing that it the thing that it attacks the most is not the rating system itself, but the arbitrary nature at which movies seem to be rated. You know, what makes a movie PG thirteen versus R? Why is NC seventeen the mark of death? What makes a movie get an R rating as opposed to an NC seventeen rating? You know, how much sex can you show? Why is this movie allowed to be shown versus this movie? I mean, to this day, there are certain movies that are rated R that I'm like, huh, I didn't realize that was rated R.
1: Because there was no um, reason for it to be.
0: No, I mean, if you're talking language, language is in Clerks is rated R because the F word is said so many mm-hmm. times. The Breakfast Club was rated R for language and there are movies, but, um, but then there are a lot of movies where there is an enormous amount of violence, but because the violence doesn't show a lot of blood or isn't particularly gory, it's PG 13, you know, so there's, and, and, and I think at one point in the movie, they actually have a private investigator. Yes. Try to get into the MPAA and figure things out or something. I, I it's, it's funny. Yeah. to.
2: I,
1: I thought again, that, what I did not like about that film as much was again, it was the people putting themselves into the movie mm-hmm. a little too much with yeah. with some of that with the private investigator with figuring yeah. out who these people are. Um, but there was there was some humor to it as well that I mm-hmm. liked humor both about the decisions that that were made than you know nonsensical uh, gradations yeah. between PG PG 13 and, and R. Also, mm-hmm. in a couple of cases, they've recorded phone calls with people, and so they recreate those like with you know cartoons or with yeah. you know the they recreate the other side of the conversation that was yeah. not filmed through animation yeah. or some other silly method. Which, yeah, which was fine. You no, know, it sort of kept a, that uh, tone that they were that they yeah. were going for.
0: They take a similar approach to what a lot of comic book documentaries do: with seduction of the innocent. Right. Where they're only really telling one side of the story, or they're not. Like, I still recommend Emily's episode <laughs> on The Seduction of the Innocent because it's the one of the most thorough. I, I've never read the book. And prior to what she did, all I knew of Wortham was what I'd read in Comic Book Nation or seen on, you know, whatever, you know, uh, feature documentary was going on. But it's such a thorough. She did such a thorough. And, you know, in many ways, objective look at him, whereas most of the time you get, you know, him and he's the comic book industry version of Joseph McCarthy, Mm
1: -hmm. which he was. But he was a lot more than that.
0: But he was more than that. And there was a person. And when you get behind the person and, you know, Jack Valenti, you know, not McCarthy, but still kind of like, you know, they, they they have him as this kind of big tough-talking Texan who's like, you know, I'm going to be the law and order sheriff around here. And yes, the rating system is arbitrary. And yes, there are things that are very frustrating about how certain movies get made and how they are rated and how they are cut and all these things. But at the same time, there I thought there were different ways to approach that and investigate what it is about our culture. Right that makes sense. which which kind of ties in the other movie i wanted last movie i want to talk about before we make recommendations which is called misrepresentation which is a documentary about um women and girls and how they are portrayed in hollywood and and it's a very feminist movie um and it is uh i, I thought it was really really good because it was, it was just one of those like really those looks at um i'm losing my train of thought here how impossible standards are set for girls how they're expected to act how they're expected to look um there's a there's a sequel to misrepresentation i have not seen and i can't remember the title off the top of my head but it's about boys and men about masculinity um and that's another one that's making a point uh both of them i think are worth watching though to make your own decision um what did you think of, of misrepresentation in that because i think we have both seen yeah, it.
1: yeah i I'm saw not sure. it not that long i, mean, I saw okay. it in preparation for this so maybe a month uh, okay. a month or so ago but i cannot recall a specific about it i mean i yeah. what i recall is what you said again yeah, it's i yeah. i think it's an important topic an interesting mm-hmm. topic and an okay documentary
0: yeah, it it makes the thing is, I think, and the, the frustrating thing about documentaries like that, which are can be very well put together, is that when they're treading ground, when they're treading upon ground that's been tread before, ha- they have, have to do something. Do something, something yeah. Yeah. And comic, we both, we are both comic fans. Comic book documentaries fall yes. into this trap all the time. I even think Mike has said he's tired of seeing these because we all know this thing. because they tell the same story over and over and over again. And they all do the same thing, which drives me nuts, is that they pretend that between the death of Gwen Stacy and whatever whatever the most recent stuff is, there were like three things that happened. <laughs> You know, there's Watchmen, Dark Knight, and The Death of Superman. You know, or maybe Image. Maybe they talk about Image. They really do. They give they give the last twenty years short shrift, probably because they probably because they are they assume that um, you know the general audience kind of lived through this. They don't need to be to remember it in the same way that your history class in high school rarely, if ever, covered the last decade because they were running out of time. <laughs> so you never learned anything <that's> that happened right. in the That's 1980s right. because it was two weeks before the final exam and we don't have the time to cover it so learn it on your own kids you know that's how I feel that they treat the 80s and 90s in a lot of those comic docs but yeah Misrepresentation is a well put together film but it it gets lost among a lot of the same the same argument is made a lot it's a legitimate argument I'm not trying to not say that the argument is not worth making it's just there's um, it, it's hard to stand out among among uh, among the field there um, so I had also said, uh, let's, let's uh, talk about a couple that only one of us has seen. Make recommendations. Uh, we've made recommendations for each other. We've picked up on recommendations for each other. And then there are some that I definitely want to see that, that you have seen or that, and vice versa. So give me two films that, that you have seen that you would recommend to both me and the two people still listening. Hi, <laughs> Stella. Uh,
1: one I would say is Anvil. A-N-V-I-L exclamation (laughs) point. Anvil. And it's a story of a heavy metal band that almost broke in the 80s. And they're still taking a shot at it now. And they're older than me.
0: I remember when this came out. And many
1: elements that are mocked in This is Spinal Tap are in that movie. Unintentionally, you know. Um. But uh-huh. a lot of the things that this almost and, and they have, you know, uh, contemporaneous interviews with I don't remember who, but equivalent of Motley Crue, et cetera, you know, big, big bands. So, I mean, these guys have opened for us and they have blown us away. They're going to be the next big thing. And it just never happened. And 25 years later, it is still just never happened. And they're still out there with mean, this movie, maybe five, 10 years old at this point, you know, I think it ends with something to the effect of, a, you know, doing a tour of Japan, you know, playing to, you know, a couple hundred people in a the theater or whatever it is. Um, you know, so a lot, a lot of what they do now when they get a gig is that gig is often overseas. They may or may not get paid, um, so you have a lot of those a lot of those elements and there's a sense of you respect these guys for never giving up and you don't respect these guys because they've never moved on it 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 balances that idea of don't give up on your dream with you got to move on bro and i think in that sense it's really an an interesting just the you know the the personal side of of looking at these guys lives is really interesting Uh, as well as the sort of the music elements and where on occasion you know celebrities you know real real successful musicians uh will will cross their paths uh, as well so that that would be my first one you want to give one sure um
0: I'll, I'll, I'll stick in music because the other one of mine is a music uh, documentary. This is about somebody who is at the height of their success, and it is also this amazing time capsule of the period in which it was produced, and that is Madonna, mm, Truth or Dare. Right. It is – I mean, uh, honestly, you don't even have to – it is part concert movie, part documentary documentary. Um, because it does have, you know, feature concerts from the Blind Ambition tour, and that is the tour with the high ponytail, the the, the Jean-Paul Gautier boustier with the uh, the the boob cones, the the uh, the one where she would perform the what they were often referred to as the masturbation dance, and so this is nineteen, uh, this is a like a prayer, so this is 89, 90. it's about ninety ninety one. Um, and she's dating Warren Beatty at the time, and it's this look into her world as a celebrity. It's a look into the popular culture of the time, and, but it's also this, it's, it's a great creative piece and, um, and a look at, at how somebody handles their fame um, in a way that is, uh, in some cases, very honest, but it's also, some cases, the movie's very calculated. And um, it's really whole, and the thing that I, I recommend about it is it holds up so incredibly well, way more than another documentary that came out around the same time, U2's Rattle and Hum Mm, does not. Um, Granted, Bono is a lot more insufferable than Madonna. (laughs) And that's part of that documentary. But, uh, no, I would recommend Truth or Dare to anyone, even if, for, for anything else, the early 90s, it is just such an a piece of early nineties uh, of, of time. It's a time capsule of, of the, of the, of the period. Uh, so, and, and again, you're talking about a group that never made it never give up and, and they're not, they haven't given up on it and stuff. You have somebody who is, I mean, I think 1989, 90, 91 really is peak Madonna. And, and it is, it is somebody at the height of their power. And, and, you know, you can see the ego And you can see, but you can also see the work uh, in the same way that you can see it in in other documentaries uh, of this type.
2: I'll go
1: with one that I haven't mentioned yet, uh, even in passing. And it's from just last year, 2015. It's very lowly rated. Um, But I I think it's better than that. It's called The Nightmare. And it's about sleep paralysis, and it's interview with I don't know, maybe if I was six, seven people, something like that, and their stories of the terrible nightmares that they have, uh, where they think they're awake, they're almost awake, and talks a little bit about the, the medical, psychological aspect of of uh, sleep paralysis, as well as. just how it how this situation um, affects the people who who suffer from it and I think one of the reasons perhaps that it's so lowly rated if you look at its score on on various things um, I'll look at IMDB it has a very low score mm-hmm. is because um, of the the of the nature of the filmmaking they do a lot of recreations. Of these people's okay. nightmares, and um, and so some of that might uh, comes across a bit silly, perhaps. You know, people describing and glowing eyes and demonic this, or there was something uh, on my bed screaming at me. Like, so they... well, like, like an unsolved mystery. Yeah, episode, exactly. So that it had a little bit of that re- okay. uh, recreation aspect to it, but mm-hmm. I think that's part of what they're doing. There are even a couple of scenes where you even pull further back and you see that you're in a soundstage. Or, um, you know, where they're... I mean, they're not hiding the fact that this is a movie and that they are recreating mm-hmm. these things. So it's weird in that sense. It is directed by the Room 237 guy. Okay. Uh, so it's, its again, it looks at these people in a non-judgmental way and lets them, lets them tell their story. So I think that's an interesting one I think just if you're interested i think in the craft of documentary and you're looking for something that's put together a little differently uh, that's one that stood out to me my uh I'm
0: gonna make an honorable mention for a movie that I've already gone into detail <laughs> with because it was um because it was one of the ones that I would have recommended had I already not talked about it, which was louder than a bomb um I think just this. This thing of a a poetry slam and a competition among high school students is uh, it's I've seen it so many times and I never get tired of it. The other one I recommend, and I don't know why it's like me with movies about rich
1: women, but Queen of the Queen of Versailles. That was um, if if (laughs) if we had done this recording a couple days from now. That was next on my list to watch.
0: That's your next list. Yeah, this is um, – I mentioned I made, the capture of the Freedmen's part of this. I was talking about The Great Gatsby, and The Queen of Versailles is – there's a Gatsby-esque quality to all this, the sort of shooting for and the downfall of the American dream. Um,
1: and and, and I my understanding is that there's a little bit of that this isn't the movie they started with because the, does, yeah. the real estate crisis – Sort of happen in the midst of the movie. Am I yes. remembering that
0: right? Yeah, because um, the the woman who is the quote queen of Versailles, she is uh, uh, she was a former beauty queen or something, and um, the person in the family who makes all the money is her husband, who is the CEO or was at one point the CEO of a huge timeshare company, and I don't th- I'm blanking on the name. Ah! Uh but they they owned um at one point they show how they built and owned the the planet hollywood um timeshare casino you know hotel and condos in in las vegas and such and so he may he is essentially a real estate mogul um and he is uh i believe he's an immigrant and that's that's one of the things where he's a second generation so it's one of this one of that aspect of the story ties in and it is and it's and she's at first painted as the woman who just kind of spends his money and it, it does it's it does take a turn of like, well, there is a point where the real estate crisis happens in the middle of the movie because they're building this enormous house, that is essentially a, is a, it's like Versailles, and he, there's a lot of of uh, tension between the two of them because it becomes clear that I I'm not trying to give too much away that she she just not never stops buying things, and it's. It, and it it is sort of like you know you wonder if there's something psychologically there you know like so it's a really good character study, and at one point it part of it is this sort of Kardashian esque look at these mm-hmm. <laughs> look at these shitheads, but but on the other hand it's intriguing enough to not so that you're not as dismissive of them and you do really get wrapped up in like this thing that we are supposedly all supposed to aspire to. You know the 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 dream of having all the money, and things like that, and the darker side of that, and and how, you know, and again, how that's presented to us versus what the reality is. But yeah, no, I I really recommend that. It's 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 a fun it's it's a fun documentary parts that it, like you get like really really sucked into. In my
1: my understanding also is that you don't want to be sympathetic, but by the end you, you sort of are. You
0: kind yeah. of are. Yeah, it's, you are gr- sympath-
1: Very grudgingly. It's. It is
0: complicated, yes. and and that's what that's that's a sign of a good yes, piece absolutely. like it. it is very it is complicated. Now, a lot of the films that we've talked about are readily available if you have access to streaming services. Uh, there are a number that are on Hulu Plus. There are a number of that are on are on Amazon Prime or on Netflix. Uh, either for available for downloaded uh, for Netflix, they're either on DVD or they are on streaming. I would, I,
1: I would also throw in, as I always do whenever we talk about comic books. But especially with documentaries, your local public library is yes. going to be a probably a very good source as well. Yes, yes. And if you're if you're
0: one of those people who really has never watched any, and you're trying to get your your dip your your toes in the water, but you don't want to go <laughs> you don't want to go full Ken Burns. I still recommend the Dust Bowl as a good start, or mm-hmm. some of his very early stuff as a start. I would start with whatever's in your wheelhouse, whether it be science, history, travel, Sports, whatever.
1: Entertainment Sports. A, there are documentaries yeah. about every topic you can think of. Just yeah. just like they're nonfiction books about anything. And
0: a think. lot Yeah, and a lot of them appear on cable. You have things on ESPN like the thirty for thirty series. Um National Geographic and, and Animal Planet and, and and the History Channel have done a mix of edutainment (laughs) and educational stuff. PBS has several shows, uh, Nature, Nova, Frontline. Frontline's a news magazine, but Frontline is also, Frontline blurs the uh, lines between news magazine and documentary. Uh, They did that really good expose of concussions in the National Football League. Uh, They also did a fascinating one on meth, crystal meth, a number of years ago. It was just, horrifying but it was fascinating and then one of my favorite shows on pbs which is the american experience which is a long running uh history documentary series and pbs has an app that you can um has a streaming app available for i have it on my kindle i'm pretty sure it's available for the ipod uh, ipod ipad as well that you can stream a number of uh their specials and shows and things like that for free as well so um there's a lot out there it's very easy to be overwhelmed, but there's a lot out there in a way that, that like I said, at the very top of the show, uh, there wasn't 20 to 25 years ago when I was a kid where we were just going to video stores and, and seeing what was available or whatever was being shown on TV. I mean,
1: there's a chance you don't know, but in, in a couple decades, this we may look back at this era, the early 2000s, as the golden age, or at least the beginning yeah. of a golden age of documentaries for all the reasons we talked about way 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 long ago at the start of the episode (laughs) yeah so
0: thanks again for coming on um before uh before i let you go why don't you tell people where they
1: can find you well thank you tom i always appreciate the invitations for these small easy digestible no homework required (laughs) topics oh you're a teacher of course you give your guests homework now it all makes sense You have you have a higher you have a higher rank. Hey, than hey, I'm sir. I'm supposed to be on the giving of homework side, not on the receiving, buddy. <laughs> yes, well, uh, most of uh, my work or our work uh, can be found at relatively geeky, relatively geeky podcast network, relatively geeky podcast dot blogspot dot com or in iTunes. There you can find shows mostly about comic books, including my quarter bin podcasts and other shows and along with my offspring and co-host and executive producer, Emily, uh, we do the short box showcase.
0: All right. And uh, I will be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. I believe if things go according to schedule, the next time you will hear me on this podcast feed will be the very final episode of uh the 80 years of dc comics series uh and then my next proper pop culture affidavit episode should be about music and should have another guest if we can find the time to do the recording we want to do otherwise go out watch some documentaries stream the stuff while you're uh you know while you're you're sitting around instead of watching the umpteenth uh rerun of (laughs) something on cable and as always thank you for listening and take care Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit. All clips and media are copyrighted their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only so no infringement is intended. Feedback can be sent via email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. For more content, including show notes, media, and essays, be sure to check out the blog, which can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can support all the Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com whenever you shop. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.